Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Episode 3 of Atomic Dreamland. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. The third atomic test at Maralinga may have been small by comparison to its predecessors, but it proved to be the most politically explosive. The famous Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee was advising the government that there had been no fallout, no radioactive contamination of the Australian mainland. Rob Robotham was a health physicist with the UK Atomic Energy Research Establishment. The contamination was there. It was measurable, and Marston actually found that contamination. Now, as I read Marston's material, Headley was not actually saying this is a real threat to the Australian population. What he was saying was that lies were being told and the Australian population was being wrongly advised and the government was being wrongly advised. Two weeks after the third Maralinga test, Marston wrote to his friend Mark Oliphant. He detailed an extraordinary admission by Safety Committee Chairman Leslie Martin about how the latest test had been let off in haste. Dear Mark, Les Martin became quite cock-a-hoop when I asked him if he had any record of fallout over Adelaide. He said, I can talk with complete authority, there's been no fallout over Adelaide, none whatsoever. When I showed him our observations, he collapsed and stated, no reports regarding the third bomb have been submitted to me, I left this baby to Titterton, it was a very small one. Later, he broke completely and said, the pressure was on, please remember the pressure was on. I'll leave no stone unturned to ensure that the essence of the report is published. When Marston threatened to publish his fallout findings, Australia's intelligence service, AGO, marked his file, Scientist of Counterespionage Interest. Marston was convinced he was being spied on that his phone was being tapped and that his mail was being interfered with. He made no secret of it because he was openly talking about it that Wills, H.G. Wills, or whichever one of the one of the, the Wills of Adelaide, was the ASIO representative in South Australia and uh, Wills was organising a campaign against Headley and Headley was being victimised and all sorts of nasty things were happening. My dear David, the secret police have been tampering with my private mail. 
Perhaps they imagine they could frighten me into silence. I endured this indignity for long enough to obtain complete proof and then asked the people responsible to cease their nonsense or I'd call for a public inquiry. Arrogance and this sort of thing is rapidly changing Anglophiles into Anglophobes. Marston realises that uh, he's in a very dangerous situation. Not only are the British wanting to curtail his, the experiments, the security net is closing in. It had become the most politically charged dispute in Australian science. In his report, Marston accused the Safety Committee of lying to the Australian people about fallout. His findings of iodine-131 in sheep and cattle were proof that large areas of the Australian continent had been contaminated. This, he said, would result in increased cases of thyroid cancer in humans. But Marston went further. The presence of iodine-131 in animals, he said, meant that an even more dangerous isotope had contaminated the food chain, strontium-90. There's one aspect that Headley did stick his neck out a bit, and certainly the iodine was measurable as an indication of where the fallout had gone, and he extrapolated that there would be strontium also. Now, iodine is sufficiently hazardous in quantities and sufficiently hazardous in, uh, in pregnant women and breastfeeding women and so forth, but its half-life is relatively short, whereas strontium is very dangerous because it's got a, a huge half-life and it settles in the bone and just pinging off radiation forever. We have low levels of strontium-90 falling out of the atmosphere at that time and landing on the herbage, being eaten by the cow, accumulating like calcium does in the milk of cows, and then in this concentrated form, it's called biological magnification, going down the gullets of children. When humans drink that milk, babies and children in particular, who are laying down bone very quickly, their bones are the places where the strontium and the calcium eventually wind up and once it's there, it doesn't go away again. It stays there with its 29 years half-life. So in 29 years, half the activity is still there. In 58 years, a quarter of the activity is still there. If you've got radioactive material in your bones, it's very able to irradiate the bone marrow. So strontium-90 in the bones, irradiating the red bone marrow, um, was seen as a very severe and significant threat. If Marston was correct, strontium-90 uptake would be dramatically increased by a government policy, which guaranteed a half pint of milk daily to every school child. There is a very serious likelihood that internal radiation from strontium-90 may, after a latent period of some years, result in many painful deaths from cancer of the bone. Marston was now in a collision course with the most powerful forces in the British Commonwealth. If he published his report as he threatened, it could jeopardise future atomic testing in Australia been a major blow if Australian public opinion had turned against them in a very serious way. Because more tests were planned, there were, there were further developments the British wanted to test, and at that stage they had nowhere else to go. 
the British demanded Marston return their test equipment. And Ernest Titterton, the new head of the safety committee, insisted he delete his attacks on the committee's competence and his claims about strontium-90 contamination. That was the only point at which the Titterton Martin Mafia group could have a go at him and extrapolating that denigrate everything. Marston had never measured strontium-90, but in his report, he left no doubt where his detractors like Titterton would find it. He states right at the end of his report, the proof will be found in the bones of children. All one has to do is to examine the strontium-90 load in the bones of deceased people and particularly children in the coming decades to show that I am right. While Titterton, as head of the safety committee, denied the presence of strontium-90 in fallout, he immediately instigated a top-secret, highly unethical program to measure it and hopefully prove Marston wrong. During the late 50s, I was employed by the Department of Supply in Perth. As part of my duties, I was asked to attend a large public hospital. And receive from the pathology department of that hospital a package which I was to on forward to the Eastern States. On receiving this package, I identified bones as being those of young children. Thought to myself, bloody hell, what's going on here? I was able to talk to the people in the pathology department as to what this was all about. And I was told that the bones were taken to the Eastern States, they were ashed and analysed for the presence of strontium-90. Soon after Marston delivered his report, the safety committee contacted pathologists in every capital city. They were asked to provide bones from bodies undergoing autopsy. Throughout 1958, more than 400 bone samples were analysed. In all cases, the next of kin were never told. The secretary of the safety committee wrote to all of the participating pathologists very early in the program a letter saying, it may have occurred to you that the general public would not take kindly to the question of removal of bones for purposes of radioactive uh, testing and I therefore ask you to um, uh, treat this matter as confidential. The bones of people of all ages were analysed, but the safety committee requested as many from babies and stillborns as possible. Analysis revealed strontium-90 levels in infants were up to five times higher than in adults. But these levels, Titterton claimed, were well below the safety threshold and would not cause damage to cells or result in cancer. The issue was that there was no real knowledge of whether there was a threshold value below which it was safe to get radioactivity. The safety committee assumed there was. Headley said there's no evidence for that. And you have no right to reassure the public that they are not in any danger. It was a question now dividing scientists around the globe. Is there a safe level 
of radioactive fallout. Nobel Prize winning chemist Linus Pauling. According to the best estimates of geneticists, all of whom agree, 15,000 children are sacrificed for every large bomb tested. It is possible there is damage. Creator of the hydrogen bomb, Edward Teller. It is even possible to my mind that there is no damage. And there is the possibility, furthermore, that very small amounts of radioactivity are helpful. But the most dramatic assessment came at an international conference attended by Mark Oliphant in 1957. Twenty of the world's leading scientists warned that strontium-90 could irreversibly damage the human race. Oliphant came back very reassuringly to Marston, saying that the kind of uh, opinions that were now merging internationally on this question of fallout were entirely vindicating his own opinion. During the second year of the Strontium-90 survey, in 1959, radiation in the bones of children increased by 50%, even though Britain and the other nuclear powers had agreed to a freeze on atomic testing. Such a dramatic increase meant that some of the contamination was coming from elsewhere. The only possible sources from past American and Russian hydrogen bomb explosions, which had sent strontium-90 into the stratosphere and was now slowly falling to Earth. Increased use of bigger and bigger devices by the Americans and the Russians meant that fallout was now becoming a global problem. Health physicist Peter Burns. So that everybody on Earth was getting a dose of radiation. And the consequences of this, if it had gone unchecked, would have been quite significant. Regardless of dramatic increases in reported cases of leukaemia in many countries, the nuclear powers resumed atmospheric testing in the early 1960s. In 1962, the world rocked to about one nuclear explosion a week. And the levels of fallout were just going up dramatically. It really was getting to the stage where, where would it all end? A few years ago, scientists of the US Department of Agriculture, working in cooperation with the Public Health Service and the Atomic Energy Commission, developed a laboratory method for removing radioactive strontium-90 from milk. As Hedley Marston had discovered, strontium-90 was indeed the Achilles heel of nuclear weapons advocates. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When a study of baby teeth in the United States found dangerous levels of strontium-90, President John F. Kennedy called for a permanent halt 
to above-the-ground nuclear testing. The loss of even one human life, or the malformation of even one baby, who may be born long after all of us have gone, should be of concern to us all. Our children and grandchildren are not merely statistics towards which we can be indifferent, nor does this affect the nuclear powers alone. These tests befoul the air of all men. Finally, in response to growing public concerns about fallout, at evidence from around the world of rising strontium-90 levels in human bone, the atomic powers agreed to stop atmospheric testing. All future explosions would now be carried out underground. By now, as far as Headley was concerned, it was too late and too little. I think he probably would have felt vindicated, but uh, I think the wound was so deep at the time that, that uh, it was a persistent scar, as far as Headley was concerned. Headley Marston monitored six of Britain's 12 atomic tests in Australia. He found that two of the tests resulted in radioactive contamination of cities and grazing lands, raising the question of the long-term health consequences for people living in the fallout areas. I've been told by uh, a number of people that they remembered a cloud coming down the valley of Nantawarra uh, that related to the Maralinga test. South Australian farmer Karen Moses. And there's speculation, local speculation, I suppose, that it may have something to do with the, what seems to be a high number of cancer deaths in our district. I would love to know, you know, if there is some truth in that, that story. Um, I mean, it's too late to, to save my, my late husband, I guess, but it would be nice to have some answers. Where there's a very definite increase in the incidence of, of anything but cancer in particular, um, if there is an event such as that, which could be uh, assigned a causative role, then one has to be very, very careful not to deny the possibility that that could be so. And in fact, I think that possibility is often denied. The true impact of atomic testing on the Australian population may never be known. But the evidence that contamination did occur lies within the remnants of the Strontium-90 bone survey. The program only became public in the late 1990s following the discovery of more than 20,000 bone samples stored in the basement of Australia's Radiation Authority, ANSTO. The full extent of the program was astonishing. Over two decades, bones had been taken from more than 21,000 bodies, making it more than twice the size of a United Nations global survey. In 2001, the Australian government established a Strontium-90 Ethics Committee to investigate the bone samples. The committee was headed by Professor Chris Cordner. It was a very big business over 20 years and just to think of all of those samples of uh, ashed bone lying there in storage and being used was, was, was something of a shock. The Ethics Committee discovered that permission to remove the bones had not been obtained from the families of the deceased. We know that in some cases whole femurs of babies were taken out. Penny Brabham sat on the Strontium-90 Ethics Committee. In other cases it was skull samples, vertebrae, because they could easily be taken out from autopsy. The enormity of the bone survey 
raises questions about the motives of the Safety Committee, particularly its driving force, Sir Ernest Titterton. Was he genuinely concerned for the population's welfare, or could there have been a personal or political motive? This huge survey, perhaps a thousand bones a year, I can't believe that there wasn't fear here, uh, that he was extremely concerned uh, to protect himself. One way, perhaps, of doing this was to go over the top in terms of uh, proving his innocence, if you like, or proving Hedley wrong. My filmmaker colleague, Harry Bardwell, interviewed Sir Ernest Titterton in 1981. It was possible through the cooperation of the hospitals and pathologists to actually sample human bones of individuals who had died. Was there any radioactivity in any of the human bones? Yes, there's radioactivity in you and in me as we sit here. You've got loads of radium in your bones, you've got loads of potassium in your soft tissues, and you've got, as everybody else on Earth has, small amounts of materials from nuclear weapons testing carried out by the Russians, the Americans, the British, the French, and the Chinese. But the levels are so small that they have absolutely zero effect on you. Titterton was right in the sense when he said it would not be a major radiation hazard for the Australian population. Where he was wrong is in saying that there was no hazard. It was not the sort of thing you would expect people of their standing uh, to actually state. And uh, so those sorts of assurances were being given for political, not scientific reasons. In the mid-1980s, a Royal Commission investigated the British nuclear tests in Australia. It declared the Titterton Safety Committee failed to carry out many of its tasks in a proper manner. And at times it was deceitful and allowed unsafe firing to occur. The Royal Commissioner, Jim McClellan, was scathing of Titterton and accused him of being a British plant. On the day of his retirement in 1965, Hedley Marston died in an Adelaide hospital. Until the end, he believed there was no safe level of exposure to radiation. It is still one of the most contentious arguments in science. It was not a term that was used at the time, but, but Marston was a whistleblower. He found out that lies were being told to the Australian public and he wanted to bring this to the attention of the Australian public. And for a long time, uh, he was kept away from doing that. If Headley had not had the anger he had and the convictions he had and the ruthlessness he had, he would not have won that battle. He did win it. And although he made himself very unpopular, with both with the government and with the, certainly with the, a lot of the scientific establishment, I think he's been justified by time. My dear Mark, sooner or later, the public will demand a commission of inquiry on the fallout in Australia. When this happens, <laughs> some of those boys will qualify for the hangman's news. Coming up in episode four of Atomic Dreamland, 
He had this vision that uh, there's going to be a population of the interior of Australia built up by nuclear technology, the equivalent of 44 large nuclear power plants by the year 2000. And obviously he'd have the idea, well, we'll have nuclear weapons too, and we'll be one of the great powers in the world. He took to the floor of the Senate and argued that Australia should have its own nuclear weapons, its own rockets and missiles to deliver those nuclear weapons, and asked the question, putting an Aussie twist on uh, French thinking at the time, asked, would the U.S. sacrifice San Francisco for Sydney? He doubted that. Atomic Dreamland is produced by Blackwaddle Films with the kind assistance of the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. Hedley Marston was voiced by the late Bill Brown. Many thanks to my colleague Harry Bardwell for his interview with Sir Ernest Titterton. To explore our other investigative podcast series, visit blackwaddlefilms.com.au.